Welcome to the Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Lucas Felton. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Runners Connect, Run to the Top podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Felton. How many of us have suffered the dreaded bonk in a marathon? Bonking is probably the greatest fear around when training for and competing in marathons. Most of us know that the human body doesn't store enough fuel to make it through the whole distance. So the question then becomes, what do you need? How much of it do you need? And how often should you take it? In this podcast, we're going to chat with our very own head coach, Jeff Gaudet, about his experiences with marathon nutrition. He's also going to tell you how you can calculate your own specific fueling needs to avoid the bonk and explain how the marathon nutrition blueprint can help. Some of the primary topics that Jeff and I discussed included Jeff's own early struggles with marathon nutrition, the importance of glycogen, fats, and electrolytes in the fueling puzzle, how to calculate your specific needs to avoid the bonk, and some specific practice tips for fueling while on the run. We'd like to thank Jeff for his time today and wish him good luck with the release of the Marathon Nutrition Blueprint. Any resources mentioned in this podcast can be found at runnersconnect.net slash running interviews slash marathon blueprint. So, uh, Jeff, good morning. Uh, good to talk to you. Haven't We haven't talked, we haven't done an episode with you in a while. So, uh, how, how are things going? Good, good, Lucas. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, obviously, uh, I've been on, I guess, quote-unquote, my own show a couple times. Um, and uh, it's always good to, uh, to chat with uh, you, and this is the first episode we've done together, so pretty excited about it. Yeah, that's true. So for those that don't know, for those who, who haven't read all your stuff on the website, uh, tell us a bit about your running background. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my running background, I started in uh, high school, as probably most runners do, um, and I ran in high school, and I was pretty successful, uh, and then ran in college at Brown University, um, was, again, luckily enough to be pretty successful there and learned a lot. Um, and then I ran professionally uh, for a few years after that, uh, mainly with the Hanson's Brooks Distance Project out of Michigan, um, mainly focusing on the marathon at the time. Um, and so ran for three or four years focusing on the 10K and the marathon and had some decent PRs, 222 in the marathon, uh, 28.47 in the 10K. Um, and so, and then after that, or I guess maybe even during that time, I started coaching. So that's really just a brief uh, rundown of, of kind of who I am and my little bit of our running background, I guess. And did you ever get to run in the Olympic trials? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I ended up uh, both times before the Olympic trials. I was I ended up getting hurt, so uh, oh. injuries kind of kind of prevented that. So today we're talking about uh, mostly talking about nutrition and nutrition strategies. Um, you've told me before that you have you you kind of figured out your own pretty specific strategy for fueling during a marathon. Can you tell us about that and how you can't, kind of came up with it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in two thousand. Six, um, I was going to run my first marathon, which is th- which was the Chicago Marathon, and so um, you know, obviously being my first marathon, I knew nutrition was going to be an important element. So um, I really tried to research as best I could, you know, finding you know what the, what the nutrition strategy for me was going to be, and you know, obviously the trouble that I ran into, and I think a lot of people run into this, is that you know there were all these like general recommendations, but it was really hard to figure out how I was going to tailor that to my specific situation. And, you know, I think we all have different um, use cases or different issues or different uh, uh, individual issues that we need to deal with. You know, and in my case, it was uh, the pace that I was running and the time that I was going to be running. So um, I was obviously on the lucky side where it was only going to take me a little over two hours to finish. 
Um, and obviously, more people are going to be in the range where it's going to take them, you know, four or five hours to finish, and that's a challenge in itself. Uh, but in any case, I really couldn't find anything that was, like, specific to, you know, what I needed to do to, to make sure that, you know, because, like, most of the recommendations were kind of like, well, you know, if you're 160 pounds and you're going to run 330, which that's great if that's who you are, but obviously that's, that wasn't my particular situation. And so that was what I really struggled with. Um, and then I also struggled with the fact that I really had a hard time taking gels. I had never taken one uh, in any way or reason to, I guess, previous prior to training for the marathon. And so the consistency of the gels really, really, um, I really just couldn't tolerate them. I had a really hard time stomach them, stomaching them. Uh, I would kind of like almost throw it up when I, when I took it down. It just was, it's a weird consistency to me. It, it, it's actually a, just a personal note. Like it happens to me with yogurt as well. Uh, like if I eat yogurt, it's, a, it's almost kind of like the same consistency. And so it, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, it makes me want to gag. So in any case, I, I knew I couldn't take gels and, or that I didn't want to take gels. And so I was kind of trying to figure out my marathon strategy from there. So, you know, fast forward, kind of went through the training process, kind of putting things together and kind of guessing a little bit at what was going to work. And um, ran Chicago, felt great through about 18, 19 miles. Um, and then I pretty much just crashed. And, you know, for anybody that has bonked, like, you know, the experience, like, I remember, I vividly remember crossing the bridge at like 13 miles and thinking like, wow, I feel amazing. Like, I'm just going to totally crush the second half. And then, you know, once you bonk, it's the, the show is over. I mean, it doesn't matter how bad you want it and how hard you're trying. It's, you know, there's just nothing you can do. Um, you know, and a big part of that was just, I wasn't taking in enough fuel. And for me specifically, it was because I wasn't using any type of gels. I was using, um, mostly uh, sports beverage, and I just wasn't taking enough of it. So so that was my first experience with the marathon nutrition. And obviously, uh, so then I decided to run the Twin Cities Marathon the following fall. And I kind of, uh, you know, and really instead of, uh, instead of looking, at, looking at that particular issue and, and really trying to figure something out specific, I kind of just uh, went the opposite direction and said, well, if I didn't fuel enough, then I need to fuel more. Um, and so I really worked hard to, I guess, make sure that I didn't run out of glycogen. And the problem there was that I pretty much overdid it. So like the night before the race, I had way too much pasta, um, really tried to, to basically carbo-load to the max. Um, and then I started the race, and, you know, I was just feeling lethargic and, you know, not great from the start. Um, and then because of what happened in Chicago, I started fueling really early. Um, I, had, I had gotten to the point where I could take gels. I practiced pretty hard. Um, you know, that was, that was like the change that I made was like, well, I'm going to, you know, really practice with gels here. Um, and so, but I started pretty early um, and was taking them too frequently as well. And so I really just had major stomach issues, um, kind of felt lethargic the whole way, you know, things are just not right um, and really kind of crashed and burned in that way, but not from a glycogen bonk, but actually from probably taking too much. Um, so yeah, so those are my, you know, two big marathon experiences in terms of like nutrition. And so at that point I was like, you know, I really need to figure this out. And so luckily, um, there were some big uh, nutrition, uh, well, I sh there were some big marathon training summits um, that were coming up due to um, the 2008 Olympic Games. And so they were, you know, to prepare the athletes that had qualified for the Olympics, um, they were uh, putting together these uh, summits for all the coaches and athletes as well. And so I was able to attend some of these and, and get some of the feedback and talk to some of the doctors and kind of nutritionists and stuff like that and uh, was really able to start coming up with a way to um, actually uh, strategically and uh, ac accurately calculate exactly what my glycogen needs were going to be 
um, what my hydration needs were going to be, and that way I could put together a specific plan um, based off you know what I was eating, what I was drinking, and that kind of thing. And um, and that was really when things started to click. So that's that's kind of uh, my journey into marathon nutrition, the struggles that I've had, and, and why in in this particular you know so we're launching a new product, the Marathon Nutrition Blueprint, and why I was really kind of uh, drawn to to produce this type of thing. So. So tell us about that Marathon Nutrition Blueprint. Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously what ended up happening was at, at that point, or I should say after that point, you know, I, I kind of figured out my specific calculations and, and exactly what I needed. And so that obviously was working really well for me. But the problem was, um, you know, as I began to start coaching other athletes, um, I realized, you know, obviously I was giving them advice based on, you know, those particular calculations or those best practices. Um, but you know, I realized that, you know, they're obviously, they have their own specific, you know, individual needs. And in order to, in order to provide them with specific advice, you know, I needed to take their specific individual characteristics, their weight, their pace, uh, their fitness. Um, I needed to take, and, and, you know, what worked for them, gels, water, uh, natural foods, those kind of things. I needed to take those into account uh, when, you know, advising them on the nutrition strategy. Um, and so, you know, for a long time, it was just kind of, tweaking it here and there for each person that I worked with since I was only working with one-on-one people for a long time. And um, so I was basically just tweaking my calculations for, for them. Um, and then um, I realized that, you know, this is something that almost every marathoner really, really struggles with is, and I think really can benefit from is, is getting these specific numbers right for them. And so uh, we uh, kind of as a, as a team with our nutritionist and uh, our, what we call our head of running research, John Davis, um, we looked at some of the research, and we basically were able to, calc- to, to create a bunch of cal- a few calculators um, that are able to um, calculate your the amount of glycogen that you're going to need during the race. Um, and we can uh, and uh, so so now we know the amount of glycogen you're going to need through a calculator based off your fitness, your goal time, and your weight. Um, and then we also have a calculator that can calculate your hydration needs. Um, so how much sweat you're losing, and then what percentage of your sweat is electrolytes, and so how much do you need to replace? Um, and then we can combine those two calculations into what we call a race prescription calculator, um, which can actually um, basically tell you exactly how much you need to drink, how much you need to eat, and when you need to do it. We Based off, we know how much glycogen you're burning, how much sweat you're losing. Um, and so it basically creates a really specific recommendation for every athlete. Um, so we tested it out on a few athletes um, this uh, spring for the spring marathons. Um, and it worked out really well. Um, the the athletes were very successful with the calculations. It worked out perfect. Um, and so we kind of moved into creating a, a, a product around that, what we call the nutrition bl- blueprint. So that's kind of how things got started. So that seems pretty uh, hit and miss to figure to ch- to be able to figure out exactly the right you know mixture and amount of fuel that are, that an individual person needs, because obviously our bodies are also different. Yeah, that's that's the problem, and and there's a there's um, three different or there's a couple different um, you know issues that people need to deal with, and so one is going to be your weight, and the weight is important for for two reasons. Um, one, it kind of determines how many calories from carbohydrates that you can store, so basically what your glycogen stores are going to be, um, because we know that based on a certain amount of weight, then we know you know how much uh, basically how much um, glycogen that you're going to need. Um, and the second uh, kind of issue with weight is that we also need to know how much you're going to burn. Um, and so uh, if we know your weight, we can roughly know how much glycogen per kilometer that you're going to burn. And for 
uh, for just for general reference, it's usually about one calorie per kilogram per kilometer. So, um, so basically, that's why if we know your weight, we know roughly how much you're going to uh, to burn in terms of calories. So, so if we know your weight, we know how much you're storing, and we know how much you're burning. Uh, but the problem with the marathon is that you you know you you can burn both carbohydrates and fat, and so. Uh, in order to determine, and so obviously you have a limited store of carbohydrates and a limit, and a pretty much an unlimited storage of fat. And so, in order to make sure that we don't uh, use all your carbohydrates, we need to figure out what percentage um, of the carbohydrates you're going to burn based off um, the effort that you're running. Um, and so, in order to do that, we need to know what your goal time is and then what your fitness is. And so, basically, if, if we know what your fitness is, we can know how hard you're working to. Um, to run the goal time that you're trying to achieve. And if we know how hard you're working, then we know roughly how, we, we know pretty accurately what percentage of carbohydrates versus fat you're going to burn. Um, and so once we have those three numbers, your glycogen um, totals or how much glycogen you stored, how much glycogen you're burning, and then what percentage of, uh, of, that, of those calories are going to come from carbohydrates, then we're pretty, we can pretty accurately um, measure um, you know, how much actual glycogen you're going to need to replace during the race. And then once we know that number, then, you know, the, the common problem with most runners is either they're going to underfuel and not take enough, or they're going to overfuel, which is actually, I think, almost more common, which is like what I did in my second race, uh, going under the theory, well, I just need to fuel as much as I can. And that, uh, that kind of creates its own set of problems that are, that's not bonking, but it can be just as detrimental to performance. So, so yeah, I think, um, you know, having getting that specific number is really important. And so what exactly is scientifically meant by the term bonk? Yeah, so, uh, when, what, yeah, what so bonking is pretty simply just when your body runs out of glycogen um, or doesn't have enough glycogen anymore to, um, to, to allow you to maintain the, the running pace that you're trying to do. Um, so uh, you're right, bonking can be a little bit confusing because I think when most people think of bonking, they think of basically glycogen levels getting to zero. Um, but the body is a you know an amazing um, amazing uh, system in that it it'll protect you. It will never let your your glycogen levels get to like zero. Um, so roughly, what science has shown is that roughly around fifty percent of your once you kind of re reach about fifty percent of your glycogen storage, then your body will start to uh, shut down, and and that's in an effort to protect you from killing yourself. And so it it shuts you down, and that's why your pace starts to slow. So I think that's when runners talk about the bonk, there's like different, um, I wouldn't say levels, but maybe severity of, of bonk because you can do one where maybe you just kind of hit that 50% mark and maybe if you only have a few miles left, you just notice yourself start to really fade hard in the last mile or two. Um, and then there's probably maybe the most severe where um, you, you're, you're not going to collapse, but you basically your pace goes from like somewhat decent to almost walking and not really being able to do much beyond that. So... And I think and the severity of that really just depends on how either far you have left to go or how much under that or how low your glycogen stores actually get. So everybody pretty much knows there isn't enough glycogen in a, you know, in, a, in a given human body to finish a marathon without taking in something else. So what are some ways to train the body to use more fat? Yeah, no, it's a great question because I, I think that's the second part of the equation, you know, or I, I, maybe even the third part of the equation is that, you know, obviously we can calculate our specific needs. But, and we, can, um, and we can train really hard to, to, or I should say practice really well and, and have a good strategy to basically get enough carbohydrates. But the other side of the coin is, well, if we get fitter and we incre and increase our ability to burn fat as a fuel source, 
then we don't need as much glycogen. Um, and so uh, there's a couple different ways that you can do that. And probably the best way is to practice what we call um, glycogen depleted runs. And that's basically when you head into a longer run or a longer workout and without having uh, a lot of glycogen in your system, so not being fully glycogen loaded. And you can accomplish that in a couple different ways. You can do it kind of a, what we call like a light glycogen load or a glycogen depletion where you uh, basically just don't eat breakfast the morning of your workout. So instead of, instead of kind of fueling for your workout in the morning, you basically just take nothing. And then throughout the workout, you take nothing as well. And uh, the other way is uh, probably a more comprehensive glycogen depletion type of workout. But that's when the night before you also don't eat much. Um, and that's not eat nothing. That's just kind of like have a light meal as opposed to what you might normally eat before a, a race, like a big workout to get your glycogen levels up um, and to get fully carbo-loaded. So you'd basically just eat a light meal the night before. And that's going to basically, um, depending on how long you sleep, it's going to be anywhere from you know maybe 10 to 14 hours um, of really not a lot of glycogen in your system. And so that's obviously not going to get it down to zero, but that is going to trigger um, something in your body that starts to tell you okay, we need to, and, and so this is why the reason glycogen depleted runs work is that when you don't have a lot of glycogen stores to start, your body instinctively will say, okay, we know there's not a lot of glycogen here, so we really need to start burning fat uh, as a fuel source, and we need to try to keep that up um, throughout the run as much as possible and conserve that glycogen as best we can. And so the body um, you know, really starts to burn fat even though it's not the most efficient source of fuel at, that, at your particular pace. And so you know, basically, just like anything in training, the more you practice something, the more your body um, tries to do something, the better it's going to get at it, the more efficient it's going to get at it. Um, and so that's what ends up happening is, by force, your body becomes more efficient at burning fat as a fuel source when running at marathon pace. And so the important part of that uh, sentence is, uh, you know, at marathon pace, because I think the problem that runners have when they do glycogen-depleted runs is that they basically just run easy. Um, so maybe they'll do it... Um, uh, you know, during an easy, uh, easy run, or they won't go long enough. Um, but you need to stress the body in some way. Um, so it either needs to be uh, at marathon pace, or there needs to be some part of the run at marathon pace or faster, um, or you need to um, go long enough where the glycogen stores actually become an issue. Because if you just run six, if you just do a gly quote unquote glycogen depleted run for an eight to ten or twelve miler, um, that's really not going to do a lot because your body is going to have enough glycogen and, um, to get through everything. So it's not going to be a really big stress. Um, so that's probably the most effective way to, um, to teach yourself to burn fat more efficiently as a fuel source. And so then another part of this puzzle that we haven't really talked about yet is maybe electrolytes. Uh, how, do the, how does that, and, and I guess inherent in that is, is, is fluids and water, how does that figure into this, into this equation? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, because you're right, that's the second part of the equation. Um, and as for electrolytes, um, you know, there's a lot of research that's just coming out. Um, Tim Noakes, in, in, in particular, is putting out a lot of this, where, um, you know, we're trying to calculate um, what exactly we need to replace when it comes to, re comes to electrolytes. Um, because I think our, our previous knowledge or previous understanding of electrolytes is that we needed to replace them as, as much as we could. So... Basically, whatever we lost, we needed to replace. And by not doing that, then we were going to have drops in performance. Um, and a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the marketing material for sports beverage companies, Gatorade, Powerade, you know, all those companies, is really based on research from the 1960s, 1970s, where they, um, 
where the researchers correlated um, drop in performance with dehydration. Um, uh, but we know now, and this is definitely, uh, I shouldn't say proven, but is, is probably what we believe more now, is that um, you can lose about 10% of your body weight during a race, 5 to 10% of your body weight during a race, and not suffer any performance impairment. Um, and so we know now that it's not really dehydration, or at least um, a small drop in a body weight isn't necessarily um, detrimental performance, and it also might not lead to dehydration. Um, and obviously, I, I say that with a caveat to people that you know they should be drinking. They shouldn't just let their, you know, they shouldn't be dropping 20% in their in their body weight during a run. Um, but that's just to say, um, I think a lot of the older research, is, or, or I guess a lot of our ideas on what how we need to refuel and rehydrate. Um, are based on on previous research. So circling back to electrolytes, um, there is some research now that suggests we may not need them as much as we think. Um, but um, I, I still think that we probably knew, do need them in um, in smaller amounts, but probably not as much as people are um, uh, are thinking. So for so, so for example, um, I think the amount of like if you're doing a marathon, it's more than likely you're going to take some type of sports drink. There are very few athletes that just take only water, and um, and so, I, and I think that the electrolytes that are in sports drinks are enough to replace what we're losing through sweat. And I, I, so I don't think that we necessarily need to go overboard with electrolytes when it comes to, um, you know, taking like uh, noon tabs or salt sticks and those types of things. Um, I think the research is showing that that's probably overboard and probably not actually the reason that you're cramping. Um, the cramps are probably coming from other, um, from another area. Um, and so as it pertains to electrolytes and fueling, um, what ends up, what, what you need to calculate when you're talking about your glycogen levels or replacing your glycogen levels is the amount of carbohydrates that your uh, beverage has. So if you're taking a sports drink, um, it's for the electrolytes and for the hydration, which you should, you need to stay hydrated, that is, that is a fact, um, then it's probably likely that it's going to, it's very likely that it's going to have some type of sugar or some amount of sugar in it. And so you need to factor that into how much glycogen you're taking. Um, since one of the critical uh, factors of, um, of marathon nutrition is that your body can only process so much uh, sugar or so much glycogen at one time. Um, and depending on, you know, what, you know, kind of your stomach sensitivity, that kind of thing, the, the combination of sugars is a couple different factors. Um, that's going to be anywhere from 40 to 50 grams of carbohydrate per hour to anywhere from the highest number that we've seen in science, literature so far has been 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Um, and so if you're taking more than that, then your body just isn't going to be able to absorb it. And more importantly, it's going to sit in your stomach and more than likely get your stomach upset. Um, and so the reason that the, the hydration really gets factored in and creates a, a, a variable that's difficult to, uh, to, to account for, or most people don't account for, is that throughout an hour, um, if let's say that you're drinking 8 to 10 ounces of sports drinks, um, then you need to account for that in the total glycogen stores for that, or the glycogen intake for that hour. So if you're then going to take an energy gel, um, you need to make sure that the combination of all the sugars from your drinks and the sugar from the energy gel isn't going to um, go over the number that your body can uh, can efficiently absorb, um, because that's when you're going to run into stomach issues, bathroom issues. That's the problem with overfueling, and that's the problem that people run into. That's interesting. That's not something you. That's not something that most uh, that most people who who even would consider themselves fairly knowledgeable in this would really consider that you, that you could really take in that a sports drink could really affect you that much. 
Yeah, and I think that's the biggest problem. Like when I say, you know, obviously I, I see I work with a ton of ton of athletes, a lot of athletes, and you know, there's basically two sides of the equation. There are people that don't feel enough, and then there are people that feel too much. And in recent years, um, the pendulum has really, really swung towards the people that are feeling too much because I, I because of you know marathons are starting to become so popular, and then the the uh, I guess the the information that's fed to these runners is you know you need to you know there's such a scare of hitting the hitting the wall bonking there there's such that fear that that they overfuel and so that has been in my experience what's what's happened to more runners um, in the last few years is that they've overfueled um, just out of fear of of not hitting the wall and without understanding that and and part of it is just not well, part of it's the uh, the company, you know, the, the the companies and their marketing. You know, for example, if you look at a Goo Energy Gel packet, it'll take you, to, it'll tell you to take a Goo every, I think it's every 15 minutes or 20 minutes or something like that. So the problem with that is, yeah, that works if you're not taking any. And I mean, even to me, I think that's a lot. But um, but that could potentially work if you weren't taking any other carbohydrate source throughout the run. Um, but obviously, if you're drinking, which you should be. Um, and you're drinking Gatorade, which most people are, to get the electrolytes, then that's going to put you way over the sugar uh, or the glycogen content, and it's going to lead to a pretty pretty upset stomach. And so that's what I've seen recently is, is more people overfueling, and a big part of it is um, just not understanding or how all the variables that are involved in terms of, you know, glycogen from your drink, glycogen from your uh, energy gels, you know, how much are you losing, that kind of stuff. It seems like a lot of the old adages, like like the guys in the 70s, it was pretty much all like, you know, 100 calories a mile, and that was a pretty, uh, you know, standard uh, number for, and it seemed like for just about anybody. So maybe, so maybe the goo is kind of going on that because most goos have about 100 calories in them. I think that's right. Yep, they're about 100 calories. Yep. But so I think they're saying, you know, if you're lo- if you're burning 100 calories a mile, well, you should probably be taking one every at least every every other mile or so. Right, and you know what ends up, ha- I think you're right, and the problem with that is that again, it's based off not necessarily outdated, but, you know, research that's a little bit off because you're right. I think for elite athletes, if you're taking 100 calories a mile, that makes sense because it's going to be, the, the time spread is going to be pretty different. So if you're running at a, at a pretty elite level, you know, if you run, you know, 10 miles is only going to take you 60 minutes. Whereas, um, you know, if you're an athlete that's running slower than that, you know, it's going to maybe you end up doubling that time. And so, the recommendations really need, to, and, and also elite athletes are running at a much greater percentage of their VO2 max or can run a marathon at, at a much higher percentage of their VO2 max than your average recreational runner. Um, and so that needs to be taken into account as well. And so um, that's why I think, you know, the general recommendations that we hear that are thrown out, they make a lot of sense because they're based on averages or they may be based on an average within a certain population. Um, but we need to make sure that you know that either you fit into that average, or we make the pot, we make the um, tweaks to make sure that we tweak it to your specific um, situation. And how does the VO two max part figure into it? Because something you know, VO two max isn't something you talk about a ton in the marathon. You know, with marathon training, what what does it matter if you're running it at at a different percentage of your VO two max? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Um, so you're right. Like in terms of uh, so VO two max matters because that's going to be. Uh, based on your pace. So like roughly we know that uh, a marathon is going to be run depending on your ability level anywhere from like 65 to 85% of your VO2 max. And that percentage is going to determine how much carbohydrates versus fat you're burning. So the higher um, the higher your VO2 or the higher the percentage of your VO2 max you're trying to race at, the more carbohydrates that you're going to burn. And so 
Um, and then also you have to factor in, um, you know, your experience level. So uh, more experience level uh, athletes can generally um, maintain a higher v percentage of VO2 max for longer. Um, and so that's why VO2 max is an important factor when it comes to the marathon nutrition um, because you, you need to factor that into the percentage versus car uh, of carbs versus fats. All right. Well, yeah, that's, 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 uh, I hadn't thought about that, but I guess it makes a lot of sense that, uh, with, you know, with greater intensities and all that. So let's move on a little bit. Um, what are some good ways to practice taking nutrition when you're training? So, um, I think, you know, the first big mistake is people getting their calculations wrong or what they need to take wrong. So that, that's one big element. The second big issue is that people don't practice and if they do practice, they practice incorrectly. And to me, practice is one of the most important parts of the marathon nutrition strategy. Um, because just like anything, you need to, well, there's a couple of reasons. One, you need to make sure that the, the strategy that you have actually works for you. And so, and, and a lot of that comes down to individual preferences. And so, you know, for example, we know, like I said, for the amount of glycogen that we can process within a given hour, um, you know, it's a, quite a range between 50 to 90 grams of carbohydrate or glycogen uh, per hour. But that really is dependent upon your specific stomach. And so there's really no way to calculate that or determine that. Um, so what you need to do is you need to practice and you need to go through this in training to find out how your stomach actually handles, whether it be 50 grams of carbohydrate in an hour or 80 grams of carbohydrate in an hour. You need to figure out how your stomach actually responds to whatever plan that you're trying to do. Um, and those are, those are situations where it's so individual, there's just no calculation. You need to, to practice it. Um, and then the second reason you need to practice is that you need to become, um, you need to get good at your, your nutrition strategy. Or so, for example, one issue that a lot of runners have is that, you know, they decide, okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and use the Gatorade that's on the course. And, and so, therefore, they're going to use the cups. But maybe they've never, they've never tried to drink out of a cup before. And for any of the listeners here that have done it uh, before, they know how difficult it can be. And for first-time marathoners who haven't, um, you know, you kind of just assume you see people doing it. it, it uh, you don't really think about how hard it may be. Um, but I remember the first time I tried drinking out of cups, um, it was, luckily it was in a workout, and I literally had to stop during the workout because I was, like, choking. Um, half of it got up my nose, and it was just an ugly, <laughs> you know, I had to stop halfway through the workout. And it took me a good, uh, I don't know, I'd probably say six or seven tries of, like, you know, continually practicing with it uh, over work, uh, you know, through different workouts um, to get good at it. And so what ends up happening is if you've never practiced that, then you get to race day and you try to drink a Gatorade and, and maybe you're like, hopefully, you know, your experience isn't as traumatic as my first one was. Um, but more than likely, you're going to get a lot on you. You're going to get a lot all over you. Um, and so it gets hard to calculate, you know, okay, well, I took a cup of Gatorade, which I thought was going to be about six or seven ounces, but, you know, what actually got in me and what actually was out of me. And so that really throws off, you know, how much you're actually getting in. And so when it comes to practice, um, there's a couple tips that people really need to, to look at. Um, the first is that they need to give themselves enough time. And so one mistake people make is, you know, let's say they're running a fall marathon this year, right? Um, they'll start thinking about, okay, now I need to practice. And maybe they'll start thinking about it in August and September as the marathon gets closer. But the problem with that is that if there is a potential problem, then you don't have a lot of time to fix it. And so... So let's say you have a you go out for your run and it's August and you're running Chicago in October, early October, and um, you end up you, you find out that your nutrition strategy doesn't work. Now you need to figure out which variable didn't work. 
you know, was it uh, the fluid that you were taking? Was it the type? Was it the gel that you were taking? Was it the amount, the, the, the brand? Um, was it too much? Were you taking too little? Um, and so there's, there are a lot of variables that can be thrown at you. And what ends up happening is somebody has a bad run and they just kind of say, okay, well, I'm going to change everything. And it's, it, you need to think of it like a science experiment where, you know, you need to isolate each variable and figure out what, what variable is actually contributing to why you're struggling. And you, that, that, therefore, you need a lot of time if, you have a, if, if you're going to have an issue. Um, and so if you wait too close to your race day, then you don't have enough time. You just kind of start drastically trying to change everything. And also, uh, same thing for, you know, like I said, with like trying to practice with the cups, those types of things. Um, you know, you need to figure out what works for you and, and, and um, have enough time to actually get good at it. You know, you want to you have enough time, practice sessions to do it. Um, and you also want to have enough uh, practice sessions for what I call, quote unquote unimportant workouts. So you know, as you get closer to marathon race day, you want to make sure that um, you're actually hitting your workouts. So the last thing you want to do on your last big quality long run before your race is try to practice taking with cups and and really struggle because then that takes away from the physiological uh, benefits of the workout. So th- if you can practice early in this in the session, then if you have a bad workout because of you know faulty practice issues or whatever, then you're not going to struggle, or at least from a physiological standpoint, it's not going to set you back quite as much. And as for specific practice tips, I just suggest to people, try to get as specific as you can to what you're going to experience on race day. So, like for example, I tell athletes that are going to use cups to set up a a table on their local track and practice running by, like, you know, maybe do one of their workouts, like let's say they have a three or four mile tempo run, do the tempo run on the track and practice taking a cup every maybe two or three laps um, from the table. So you get practice picking it up. You get practice trying to pinch it at the top and drink it. Um, and that's very specific to what you're going to experience on race day. We had a, one of our webinars for the Nutrition Blueprint the other day, and um, one of the athletes asked me, well, how do, you, how do you estimate, you know, if you're taking from a cup, you know, how do you know how much ounces of fluid are in that cup? And I was like, wow, that's a great question. And what I ended up doing to solve that problem, because uh, in some of my later marathons I used cups, was that I went to the track and I had a, one of those glass measuring cups for ounces, and I would, um, I would take a, a gulp or whatever I would normally drink from a cup, and then I would spit it out into the glass. And so I knew roughly how much with each gulp that I was taking, how many ounces that were there. And so I did this a few times just to make sure that I got an average, and then I knew that on average... Um, I was drinking anywhere from two to three ounces uh, per gulp. And so then I knew when I was actually drinking from a cup that if I took two, two or three gulps, that was going to be about six to nine ounces. And so that was how I was able to determine you know, how, many, uh, you know, how many ounces were coming from that particular cup. And so it's little things like that that can make the difference when it comes to um, making sure that you practice your nutrition strategy effectively. So whenever anybody's asked me about this at the, at the running store that I work at, in addition to working for you, is um, I, it seems like a good idea to to try out some new nutrition strategy, maybe on shorter type runs. It's, it seems like a bad idea to to find out that you that the gel you took at mile five it isn't going to work at mile ten of your of your eighteen mile long run, and then you're a long way from any kind of help. <laughs> no, absolutely, you're right, and and that's why you know in terms of practicing, it makes sense to start your practice as early as you can. Um, because obviously earlier in a marathon training session, your workouts are generally going to be shorter. And so you're absolutely right. If you're going to try out anything new, 
Uh, make sure that it's on a route where you can get back to home if, it's, if it turns out to be really bad or that it's also not like a really important workout. So that way, if it does go bad, you can just shake it off and you know, not say, okay, well, now I'm losing fitness kind of thing. And it's actually the same thing for when you practice glycogen depleted long runs. And so you, know, you want to make sure that you're not doing them on, uh, or in a, in a situation where if you bunk, there's, no way, there's nothing you can do. Like maybe you'll be, let's say you do an out and back and you're going for a 20 miler and you get out to 10 miles and, and kind of not, I don't know if you bunk at 10 miles, but let's say at 12, 13, 14 miles, you really start to suffer. Um, you don't want to have six miles home. You know, set yourself up in a situation where you can get back to home quickly. Um, and like I said, with the practice stuff as well, you know, make sure that it's not, at least the early ones, you know, make sure they're not during workouts that are like super important. And so are there any like specific, any kinds of workouts that you, that people shouldn't do in, uh, in, a, in a glycogen depleted state or should you kind of be able to ready to do just about anything? Yeah, I think you can pretty much do it just about anything. Um, I think there are a couple different theories out there about whether, you know, it should be really specific to the marathon. So, you know, if you should be doing something at marathon pace um, or if it's okay to do something a little bit faster, like if you're doing a VO2 max workout, that kind of thing. I generally tend to lean towards being, um, you know, marathon focused. So I think you're going to get the most bang for your buck at marathon pace um, because, you know, to me, that is teaching your body how to use the fat in the exact way that you're going to need to do on, on race day. Um, I think if you do something like a VO2 max workout, there's really just very, it's going to be extremely, extremely difficult for your body to, and I don't even know if it's possible, to really use fat as a fuel source if you're running that hard. And so really what ends up happening is you just deplete your glycogen stores um, and you're really not teaching your body how to burn fat efficiently uh, at marathon pace. So my general recommendation is to try to make them as close to marathon pace as possible, um, but there are some different schools of thought out there. And so a runner gets all these numbers, you know, how much glycogen they're going to burn over the course of the race, how much they have stored, what, what kind of what their sweat is going to be doing. How do they go about putting them together into a plan for race day? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, obviously, um, that's what we've tried to do with the Marathon Nutrition Blueprint was we've created a specific cal uh, calculator that pretty much does it for you. But to, to sum it down, if somebody wants to do it on their own, uh, basically, what you need to do is you need to calculate the, calc uh, the carbohydrates per ounce from the, the amount of carbohydrates per ounce in your sports drink. So whatever you're drinking, you need to know what the carbohydrates per ounce are. Um, and then you need to determine how much uh, you're going to drink. So if you want to drink eight ounces, um, or if the calculator is determined that you need to drink eight ounces every 20 minutes, then you're going to basically multiply that number by the amount of ounces that uh, the amount. Of, so you're going to multiply eight ounces by the amount of carbohydrates per ounce. So let's say, for example, Gatorade is like 1.71 or something like that. Um, so whatever 8 times 1.71 is, and I'm not a math genius, but I do have a calculator. 13.6. There you go. Perfect. Lucas is a math genius. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so yeah, so now you know that you're getting 13. So basically that number is that you're getting 13.68 or uh, 6 uh, grams of carbohydrate. Um, and if you're taking that tw every 20 minutes, then, then you're going to do that every 20 minutes. So that gives you the number for how much you're getting from your fluids. Um, and then you can obviously calculate uh, how much you're going to get from a gel. So let's just say that you, you know, you can look at the back of a gel packet, and if it's, uh, you, most of them are about 20 grams an ounce or something like that. And so, um, you know, that in that case, um, if you wanted to get 60 grams uh, in an ounce, or if you wanted to do 60 grams of carbohydrate in uh, or during a, a specific run, then or or during a specific hour, then you know um, how much 
how much of the gel you need to eat because you know how much of the carbohydrates you've gotten from the from the fluids. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of hard when you're not like looking at it and someone's just explaining it, but no, that makes perfect sense. So let's say a gel. So let's say a, t- a standard goo gel has about 100 calories and typically 20 to 22 grams of carbohydrate. And you know, let's say it's uh, let's say it's just goo's vanilla flavor, which I think has 21. So yeah. let's say 21 grams per gel, and then so and you want to take and say 60 carbohydrates that uh, this hour. So yep. you know that you have to take in, let's say, two of those gels and then fill in the rest with sports drink. Exactly. Yep. Makes perfect sense. Yep. So, so yeah, our blueprint does it the opposite way. It, we fill in the fluid and then fill in the gel with it. Like the gel is a supplement to the fluid um, because the fluid also has the electrolytes and the hydration. Right, um, that makes so sense. So I feel that that's more important. And the gel is kind of like the supplement where, and, and the reason is that gels are obviously much more uh, concentrated. And so, so I, I think... Um, that's the better way to do it. But, uh, but yeah, that's how we look at it. And so is gel kind of the best way to go? Because there are also a lot of chewable things out there. Mm-hmm. And I know I personally, really, and, and whatever the flavor is, it still just tastes like gel to me. And kind of like you, I kind of want to puke every time I, I, uh, <laughs> every time I take, every time I try one. Granted, I haven't tried one running hard at marathon pace, but, you know, so we'll see in the future. But right now, I really can't stand to do it. I tend to do better with things like Cliff's shot block product and things like that. Yep. How does that, how do you figure those in? Same way. Yeah, or... yeah no, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, a lot of that's just personal preference. And again, it's, it's practice. So in addition to different types of products, there's also different brands. So a good energy gel is going to be very different from a hammer energy gel or an Excel energy gel. They have three very different consistencies. And so because of that, you know, even though goo might not work for you, you may find that uh, another brand works for you within that gel product. And then you have to figure out which flavor works for you uh, because within the different gels, there's going to be, or even all products, there's going to be different flavors that you either like or don't like, um, even though it's the same product. So that's the other, that's, I guess, the, the third piece. Um, and so if you don't want to do gels, and a lot of people don't, and so this is where, you know, kind of calculating your exact, you know, plan ahead of time, um, you can definitely use what they call chews. Most of the major manufacturers make them, Power Bar, uh, Goo, Cliff Bar, you know, there's all kinds of different chewables that you can make, or uh, chewables that you can have, which if that's how you prefer to go, absolutely. There's no, there's really no um, right or wrong way when it comes to that. Um, and then there's also well, like natural options. So for example, people that just don't want to, to use something that's artificially uh, flavored or artificially manufactured you can use natural products. So for drinks, there's like uh, the, the best one is going to be coconut water. Um, for, and there's also, uh, I've heard a lot of people use like iced tea with honey. Um, that gets you a good amount of electrolytes and is also, uh, if you put the honey in there, is a good source of uh, sugar. And then as for um, foods that you can use, there's all kinds of different, um, I guess, options. But, you know, some of the more popular ones are like raisins, dates. Dates are probably the one of the most popular since it's uh, they're really, really high in sugar. Um, you can also use raisins, cherries, grapes, uh, pretzels. Um, so there's definitely different options out there. And you just, uh, bananas are, are a really common, popular one. Um, so you just kind of got to find what works for you based on, you know, what you know based on your personal preferences. So, but there's really not one that's any better than the other. I, I feel it's really about what works for you. So, you brought up something that I was that I hadn't thought about before, which was uh, the the foods part of it, the actual using of foods. Say somebody is a is a, 
of a certain say somebody is vegan and maybe has to be for for medical reasons mm-hmm. are they going to have any problems with most typical nutrition products or are they going to have to figure something else out using just vegan type foods um, so there are, l- luckily there are, like for, there's, you're right, because there's all kinds of dietary restrictions. It could be um, you're vegan or vegetarian, um, you could be gluten-free, um, you could be on a paleo diet, um, you could be diabetic, um, and so all of those are different factors that are going to change how you have to approach or uh, customize how you approach your marathon nutrition. So yeah, but uh, like in, in the case of vegan-vegetarian, there are some gels uh, that are uh, vegetarian or vegan-based. Um, and energy products, um, and again, you could also use um, whole foods. Like for example, you could use um, like bananas if you if you really wanted to. So yeah, you really just need to. There's different tweaks that you can make based on your specific diet, and that's why again, having this planned out well and ahead of uh, well in advance and well ahead of time is really important. And then I had one question um, in a uh, in a recent interview with uh, with Ryan Vale, one of the top American marathoners of the uh, of the current age which will come out in a few weeks, he mentioned that his, uh, his strategy for nutrition is to just mix in gel with water. What do you, what do you think about that one? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. Um, so I think, you know, I think it depends on how you feel about the electrolytes portion of it. So if that tastes good to you, then it's really no different than sugar water, right? You know, if, if it, you know, as long as it tastes good to him, then absolutely. Um, the problem, not necessarily the problem, but the, the potential issue with that is um, unless you're taking in gel with electrolytes, you're not getting any electrolytes. And so obviously you can just use a gel with electrolytes and that kind of eliminates that problem. Um, so yeah, absolutely. It's not a bad strategy. And again, I think that's a, a great way to show how you can really get individualized for you once you start figuring out what your needs are. So you know, once Ryan knows, and I'm sure he does, you know, what the, his specific needs are, then he can really go about any way he wants to do uh, to, getting, to getting those needs. Um, and as long as he practices it, then it, um, it's going to work for him. And I don't see a problem with that unless uh, there's an electrolyte problem, but I'm sure he's covered that. Yeah, it just was, a, it just was something a little different that I hadn't heard before. Yeah, you know, there are all kinds of, uh, of weird things. I mean, you know, having run at the elite level for quite a while, um, just the, the, the weird variety of either marathon beverages and pre-marathon meals that people use. Um, absolutely, like some of the times you'd just be like, there's, what, you know, what is this person thinking? And uh, for whatever reason, it works for them. And so um, I think that's the most important when it comes down to, you know, nutrition is it needs to work for you. So a um, couple more questions because I want to keep you too long. Um, sure. First of all, what about carbo-loading? Because there's been all kinds of things in, there's been research you know, from here to the wall that gets come out recently that says, you know, you need a carbo load that's been around forever, but then it's like carbo loading is really overrated and you don't, and you kind of shouldn't do it. What do you, what do you think about that one? Yeah, no, this is a great question. Um, so I think the, the reason that carbohydrate loading came under question, uh, is that there, the, the old method of carbohydrate loading was that you would basically decrease or taper the amount of carbohydrates um, you ate. And so let's say you were, about, you were about two weeks out from the race, then you'd go anywhere from three to six days basically abstaining from carbohydrates whatsoever. Um, and then in the final four to five days or six days, you would, you would basically gorge on carbohydrates. And what research has shown is that that's not, that, that um, depletion period just isn't needed. Um, the, the body reacts really harshly to it because it's, it's just a, such a shock to your system. 
and so the body relax, reacts really harsh to it, and so and then but it doesn't even provide a provide a performance benefit at least what the research shows, um, and so I think that's where the carbohydrate loading method or model kind of got questioned and why some people had uh, issues with it, but some of the newer models I think make a lot more sense, um, and basically. It, it, basically, the carbohydrate loading model that we suggest, and there are a couple different ways, but the, the way that we suggest, um, you basically start about two weeks out, and basically what you want to do is just you want to eat the same amount of calories that you need to, to support your training. So one of the mistakes that people make in carbo loading is that they think carbo loading, they think they need to eat more, but that's a double-edged sword because um, they're running less. Like if they start at the taper, they're running less, and so therefore they're burning less calories. Um, and then they're eating more because they, they think carbo-loading means eating more. Um, and so now the shift you know, really gets on, on a balance. They're eating a lot more calories than they're burning. Um, and so that's when people start to feel lethargic, start to gain a lot of weight. That's when, that's when carbo-loading doesn't work. So what you need to do is maintain the, the amount of calories that you need to support your training. And obviously that's going to actually start to decline as you taper since you're running less. Um, you need less calories per day to, because you're not working out quite as hard. Um, but what you want to do is you want to shift the percentage of carbohydrates that you're eating. Um, and so basically what you want to do is shift, um, you know, depending on what your previous percentage is, um, you want to shift to eating about 5 grams of carbohydrate per pound of body weight. And in order to, uh, in order to compensate for that additional carbohydrate intake, you're, pro- you're going to reduce the amount of fat that you intake. Um, so you'll, your protein levels will remain about the same. And so a lot of the research has shown um, that you can actually increase your glycogen storage by almost 100% doing this, doing this carbohydrate loading method. Again, the, the main factors are that, or the main differences are that, or mistakes is you don't need a depletion phase, um, and you also, um, you don't want to, you want to make sure that your calorie, total calories stay in balance with your caloric uh, output. Um, and so when you do that, if you just basically increase the percentage of carbohydrates, then that's when you'll, you'll see a really good increase in uh, glycogen storage without a decrease in how you or um, perf- impairments to how you feel um, and those types of things. And as you get closer to the race, obviously, like in the last few days, that can shift a little bit. Um, but that's really when we talk about carbohydrate loading. I think that's probably the uh, the best way to do it. And then you touched on it briefly. What about the 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 weight gain that a lot of marathoners and even half marathoners report during the uh, in the and especially the last few weeks of of training. Yeah, you know it's funny. I was <laughs> you're reading my mind, Lucas, because I was as I was saying the stuff about carbohydrate, uh, carbo loading. I was thinking I got to tell them about the weight gain, and then right as I was finishing up, I was thinking I know there's something I need to say, and I couldn't remember what it was. So you read my mind. Yeah, the weight gain is something that uh, a lot of marathoners get really scared about. I mean, it's probably one of the number one questions we get um, when from athletes who are in the taper is they they're like, oh my god, I'm gaining weight. This is terrible. And and what ends up happening is they're gaining weight, and they just associate that with they associate that with a loss of fitness and so that's that you know obviously now they're now they're freaking out because they're they're gaining weight they think it's a loss of perform they think it's because they're losing fitness and obviously the race is coming up they're nervous already um but the reason that you're gaining weight is actually because um for every ounce of glycogen that your body stores you're also going to store three ounces of water so basically because you're shifting the amount of glycogen that you have or i should say increasing the amount of total glycogen stores then with, uh, with every increase in, in uh, ounce of glycogen, you're also going to get three ounces of water. And so um, that's why you end up weighing more. It's not a fitness issue. It's nothing to do with you know, your ability to run. Um, it's just that you are storing more water in addition to storing uh, more glycogen. 
I've been working with a group of age group marathoners recently, and that's been uh, a few of them are just trying to lose weight in general, and they're uh, getting a little frustrated with the training, even though they're clearly getting fitter. The run, their running indicates they're getting fitter. They're not losing all that much weight, and they're and they're again getting a little worried about that. Yeah, you know, um, I think that's not even unique to the taper, and this is a this could be a, a entire podcast in itself, but. I think personally, I know it's not, and it sounds so backwards, but I think mar- if you want to lose weight, training for a marathon is not what you should do, um, because there are so many factors that come into it that, in reality, you're probably not going to lose a lot of weight when you're training for the marathon. So it's not the best weight loss method. If if you want to lose weight, you should go to the gym, uh, do some strength training, uh, do some car- uh, like more intense cardio in addition to you know easy aerobic stuff. Um, but that's really how you want to lose weight, not train for a marathon. But that's an entire podcast in itself. Yeah, the uh, the whole retaining, you know, body kind of making itself retain fat because it's burning a lot, et cetera, et cetera. Again, yes, an entire interview or an interview series even. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, just uh, last thing, when is this uh, when is this Marathon Nutrition Blueprint going to be available for use uh, for the for our Runners Connect Marathon athletes? Marathon launches on June 1st. Um, so we've tried to get it ready for all the people that are running fall marathons. We're doing a series of webinars. Um, uh, that uh, I'll talk a lot about about what we did in this podcast. So maybe if you listen to this, you, you don't need the webinar, but um, also giving an in-depth look at the blueprint itself. Um, and those are happening. Uh, we're doing two webinars a day um, on May 29th, May 30th, May 31st. Um, and I don't know if we'll do one on June 1st, but um, the, the program officially launches um, at, uh, on June 1st. Um, if you don't want to attend any webinars, you can, uh, just, you can purchase the blueprint at nutrition.runnersconnect.com. Net. And if you want to uh, sign up for one of the webinars, um, you can uh, go to uh, runnersconnect.net slash marathon nutrition webinar, um, marathon nutrition webinar. And that will uh, that'll take you to the sign up page for our webinars. And of course, if you visit our blog at any time, runnersconnect.net slash blog, um, there'll be some notifications either at the end of post or throughout the um, uh, blog that will. Uh, uh, allow you to sign up for that webinar well very cool jeff i want to end with these with these last few questions that i've been ending interviews with lately when you were racing uh what was your what what did you eat the the morning of the race for any race? yeah so morning of i actually ate and this sounds really weird but uh i usually ate bagel with peanut butter and if it was a longer race i sometimes ate yogurt which sounds really weird because most people can't handle dairy in their diet but for me it um it, it made me feel more normal like you know, because you're just eating all these carbohydrates all the time, and it's a lot of breads and starches, that it made me feel a little bit more natural kind of going into the race, and I kind of enjoyed that. Oh, I'm, I'm in that camp, too. I can't really deal with uh, a, a long day without, without some dairy. And then uh, what was your favorite race event to run? Oh, wow. Jeez. Uh, I had a lot of them. The New York Roadrunners, um, they put on amazing events. They, they do, like, the Emerald Nuts New Year's run. That's at, it starts at midnight when the ball drops in New York City, and it runs around Times Square. It's a four-miler. Uh, that is a blast. Falmouth uh, Road Race, which is uh, a road race in Cape Cod, probably the most beautiful finish that you'll ever see. You run up into a lighthouse, and it's just right on the water the whole time. Really gorgeous. Um, the Beach to Beacon 10K in Maine um, is uh, beautiful. I'm from Maine originally, so it's like kind of my hometown race. Um, love that race. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely a lot. So. And what was your favorite workout? Oh, boy. Uh, favorite workout? As sick as this sounds, um, it was probably uh, when I was training for the 10K, 
we would do um, 12 by 800, and uh, we would what we do call hammer intervals, where you'd basically at number like interval number eight and interval number eleven, you would run as hard as you could. Yeah, that does sound kind of sick. Yeah, they. I mean, it's funny. I I remember just like dreading those workouts before for days, and like you know, basically being sick afterwards. But uh, you know, looking back, those were pretty fun. So, when you were competing, what did you do for fun when you weren't training? Oh, geez. Um, Probably not much. Yeah, not much. I slept a lot. We used to, uh, at the Hanson's program, we used to have competitions about who could nap the most. And we used to have this, uh, it was like this thing we called the All-American. And it was when you could take two, at least one-hour naps, spread out by at least three hours uh, in one day. And I know it sounds like a lot of qualifications, but basically, if you could take two naps in one day, then you accomplished what was called the All-American. And uh, we tried to do that on like Sundays after a long run, so kind of fun. And finally, what race event did you never get to run but would have loved to run? Oh, yeah, good question. Um, I think the Jacksonville 15K um, is, a, is, a, is a great run. And uh, the, the guy that puts it on, uh, the elite athlete coordinator, is just a, a really great guy. It's a nice city, uh, really great race. The post-race party is pretty awesome. Um, and so that would probably be uh, up there. Well, that's all I got for you, Jeff, today. So thanks very much for your time. And uh, we look forward to this new Marathon Nutrition Blueprint, and hopefully it helps everybody out during the fall. Great. Well, thanks, Lucas. It was a great chatting with you. You too. Bye. This has been a Runners Connect podcast. We'd love it if you could leave a short review on our iTunes page to let us know what you think of our podcasts and how we can make them better for you. Also, if you have a question about this episode or any other, please don't hesitate to ask. You can leave a comment on the webpage or leave us a voicemail at 617-356-7969. We'll do our best to answer as many of these questions as we can, either in a future episode or in one of our monthly Q&A sessions. I'm your host, Lucas Felden, and thanks for listening.